welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. This is the first podcast in the series. We'll pass over the book's introduction, chapter one, and go right to chapter two with an overview and a clinical example. What were the main ideas that you wanted to address with this book? What is really the purpose of this book? All of the problems that we deal with in psychotherapy have a few things in common and that that really, really simplifies the job of, of therapy. Even though people come to us with a huge variety of different sorts of troubles, they all really boil down to the same thing. All of the troubles that we can help people with in psychotherapy have to do with, well, I'll call it coping gone awry. The reason our way of, ways of reacting to life are less than, than they could be, are not optimal, is because we're trying to avoid, or our instinctive mind, deep down, is trying to avoid some uncomfortable feeling. So that's the core, avoiding an uncomfortable feeling. I call it the affect avoidance model. And that key just runs through, through so many different kinds of problems, and, and so that's sort of the theme of the book. In chapter two, I read that one of the purposes of the book was also to transcend theoretical frameworks or theoretical models for psychotherapy. And I thought that was a very interesting idea because oftentimes we're trying, we therapists are trying to fit a patient into a theoretical model that might work for them to a certain degree, but not entirely, that might be well adapted to that particular case. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Right. Well, many years ago when I first learned to be a therapist, um, I was taught in the strictly Freudian psychodynamic school and, and was first exposed to my own psychotherapy where the, where the analyst basically sat back and said very, very little. Little by little after that, as I began to practice, I, I found that I got more active, I got more engaged, and the more positively involved I was, the better I was as a therapist. And so, uh, so I began to borrow uh, uh, ideas from other other camps and for example I realized pretty early that behavior in in the 21st century that things people do are some of the most powerful ways that we avoid feelings and you know in the in the traditional approach to, to therapy you'd quote interpret uh, somebody's unhealthy behavior you tell them well I think there's something that's behind this and then the patient was supposed to figure out on their own that maybe that behavior wasn't a good idea and maybe they were and they were supposed to change on their own well after a while in my career I got involved with addiction and I realized that if you wait for people with an addiction to decide that they don't want to do their addiction anymore you're just irrelevant 
So, so behavior became a part of the work that, that I did very much. And anyway, long story short, it, it seemed to me more and more clear that all the different therapies really do the same thing. And so, in my teaching, I began to look for ways that, uh, that people could learn therapy without having to, to just focus on one school and then tippy-toe into some other school when, when they needed it. There's really one way, and it's focused on what goes wrong and how people change, and that's that's what this book is about, and that's what we're um, we're going to help our our listeners to understand. So, you begin chapter two with a case study of Jack, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Jack. Okay, well, Jack is a really really kind of typical case that walks in the door of every therapist. Uh, he's, he's a guy who's a nice, in his 30s, cable installer, pleasant guy who's at work, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, he has this panic attack where his heart starts pounding and he can't breathe, and his co-workers take him to the emergency room, and turns out his heart is just fine, and they tell him, you know what, as, as many of the emergency visits turn out, this is really something that has to do with with your psychology and we're going to refer you to a therapist. Jack certainly doesn't believe much in therapy. He has a sister who takes pills and and he thinks that's for weak people and he's really a kind of a very independent pretty strong guy and that's one reason why he just got a promotion in his job um, and his wife is all, all also coming along with a new baby pretty soon and so on his first visit to a therapist, we begin to learn that even though Jack says everything's fine in his life and it's going great, there actually are some stresses um, because sometimes good things are stressful. And if we think about it, that new baby and that promotion are pretty stressful for Jack. But at the same time, there's another factor that makes us sort of, that puts him in a sort of a vice in addition to having extra stresses, he also has a liability because he's a guy who has to do everything on his own. He's got to be strong no matter what. He can't lean on anybody else. That's what his sister does. And so he's constrained. He's not allowed from inter inside himself. His own value system doesn't allow him to... Um, to seek help or to lean on anybody else, even though his stress level is going through the roof. So what happens? Well, his instinctive mind pulls the emergency cord and all the alarm bells go off and he has a panic attack. So in brief, that's, that's the story of Jack. So using the story of Jack, which we will uh, refer to regularly, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this idea that you outline in Chapter 2 of the distinct modules that you call entrenched dysfunctional patterns. Could you elaborate a little bit more about that? Okay, so there's, there's a few important ideas, and I'm going to pack them all together here in this chapter but we'll learn about them um, more gradually through the, through the course of the book. So one of them is that problems come from avoiding painful feelings. That's deep down mostly not conscious, but, but that's a characteristic of human beings. And the second one is that we're going to 
kind of throw out the diagnostic book because as a, for therapists, it's not terribly helpful. Maybe for psychiatrists and for, for prescribing medicines and things like that, diagnosis, like having categories for people is, is a pretty good idea. But for therapy, it's very imprecise. Uh, most people have a mix of different problems, a mix of different characteristics. And even people who try to use the diagnostic manual find that they're giving two or three diagnoses to somebody instead of just one. And that would, that would show uh, an inability to differentiate, right? To do a differential di diagnosis. So we just kind of throw three diagnoses at a person and voila, it's done. That's right. So not only are we going to simplify things, we're also going to find the relationship between different problems that a person brings. So, so the first problem that, that Jack brings, and I'm going to call them modules or I have a new term, I hate jargon, but there's one piece of jargon that's going to go through this, these podcasts, and that is entrenched dysfunctional patterns. An EDP. EDP. Entrenched means that they're hard to change, and if they were easy to change, then people wouldn't go to a therapist. They're dysfunctional, yes, they're, they're things that represent a less than fully satisfactory way to deal with life, and they're patterns meaning that there are things that didn't just happen once out of the blue, they're things that are likely to uh, reappear, and that's the concern. That's why Jack is in therapy, is so that his panic attack won't happen again. So there's, there's one thing that really uh, struck me in the case of Jack, and that is that Jack, when he first came to see you, expected therapy to last not more than one, perhaps two sessions. Right. And you list this as one of the modules, right. uh, perhaps the first one that you actually had right. to tackle. Okay, so I've hinted at, at those. So the, 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 in, if we're thinking about it, the most surface EDP, the most surface problem that Jack brings is the panic attack. But what I mentioned before when I said Jack is a very independent guy. A rugged individualist. Uh, exactly. I was hinting at the fact that there's something about his personality that sets him up for trouble. And that is going to turn out to be the second layer underneath the, um, the first one. And we'll find in a little bit that there's a third layer. So let's go to the panic attack first. Panic attack is his mind has unconsciously detected the possibility that Jack might, without being able to lean on anybody else and facing all this stress, maybe he's going to have some kind of a meltdown. Maybe he's just not going to be able to cope. And so his mind pulls the panic, uh, pulls the panic uh, cord. And um, so that's module one on the surface. And that's the one that we'd like to go after first. But if Jack is going to leave after the first session, then maybe we can't approach that module first. Maybe we're going to have to look at that second. And first, we're going to have to take into account this personality characteristic he has, that he's the rugged individualist. So that may be the second module down, but we're going to have to deal with it first. And in the book, I, I, I outline kind of, a, kind of an indirect strategy, because we can't really deal with it directly. If we came at Jack, at Jack and said, hey, Jack, I think this independence has to go. What that would think? never work. No, Jack is going to run out the door and say, what do you mean? What do you mean? You're not the doctor for me. I'm out of here. 
And, and so definitely can't do that. So the strategy that, I've, that I think I would use in that, in that situation is I would, I would say, Jack, you know, I'm going to suggest some procedures here. I, there's some things that, that you're going to need to do that'll help you out with these panic attacks so they won't happen again. But we're going to have to, it's going to take at least a few sessions for us, to, for you to understand those procedures, and they're going to give you some better control over this panic situation. So if it's okay with you, we're going to work together for at least a little while to, to help you master this panic problem that you had. And by doing that, you are really empowering him. You are addressing the rugged individualist by saying, you can't, there are practical things that you can do to empower yourself. That's right. But in the course of it, this rugged individualist is going to get some help from me. So we're going to have a partnership which goes against his value system that says you should never have to lean on somebody else. But, you know, we all know sometimes you have to go to the doctor and sometimes there are, sometimes there are medical treatments that you have to put into place. So I'm going to use Jack's sense of duty and his what he already knows from his work about following procedures to make it more palatable for him in spite of his rugged individualism to accept the therapy. So I bypassed that that personality module. And the resistance that he brings to the first session that he wants to be rid of the panic, but he does not want therapy because fundamentally asking for help does not correspond to or doesn't align with his personality. Exactly. So, so Jack breathes a sigh, really, all right, doctor, okay, I'll listen. And so then we can talk about the panic attacks. And that's when I begin to ask some questions and begin to learn that, that Jack's situation that Jack's situation in life was not quite as uh, stress-free as he first presented and that he's not quite as, as comfortable and on top of the situation as, as he might have thought. And I'm going to go lightly on those things again because, um, because Jack is so worried about not being in control. And I'm going to talk more about, well, so what we're going to do to help you with this, I'm going to do some education, is to realize that Panic attacks come from your instinctive mind that's been a little worried lately. And, and your instinctive mind wants to make sure that, that you actually are able to keep going and be a dad for this new kid who's coming into your life. Uh, but your instinctive mind just comes at it the wrong way by pumping out adrenaline and giving you all of these symptoms. And so, so I'm going to talk to Jack about the next time this happens, how to talk to his instinctive mind and remind himself that this is a natural thing. And maybe there'll be some other techniques, maybe even a little medication to, uh, to help him if, if this should happen again. And maybe we'll uh, do some things to relieve him of stress. And maybe I'll actually ask his wife to come in the next time and see if we can enlist some support from her again as as part of a medical procedure not because uh, he's a weak guy so all of those things might help him with it i'm not going to go into the details of the treatment in the meantime i'm also in taking 
my initial history about Jack, I'm kind of interested in why he might have wanted to become such a rugged individualist. Right, and, and so in asking that question, you are uncovering another layer of a dysfunctional pattern. Right, so this is that second one, that personality one, and it turns out that Jack, you know, his, his life wasn't quite that easy. You know, Dad was drinking a little too much, Mom was kind of overwhelmed, and he pretty much, if he had been too clingy and whiny and needed a whole lot of attention when he was a little kid, it wouldn't have been there. So what his mind did is, in order to spare him the pain of asking for attention when it wasn't, when his parents didn't have it to give, and that's pretty painful to knock on a door and nobody answers, so his mind developed what I call a value system, the value of being a rugged individualist. Because that way, what would happen is if he even thinks about asking for attention, his mind says, oh no, that's shameful, you don't want to do that. And if he, if he loses control and actually finds himself asking for help or leaning on somebody else, he's going to feel a lot of shame. And that's a painful feeling, so he's going to stay far away from that feeling. That way, we'll say a whole lot more about this later on, but that way his mind develops, through a value system, develops a way of keeping him from exposing himself to the pain of asking for attention when it's not there. So, you described Jack's stressors uh, as being positive ones. And for a rugged individualist, I imagine that it would be very difficult to, to even wrap their minds, his mind around the idea that really good events, positive events, po events that people strive for in their lives, promotion at work, the creation of a family, could be stressors. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when, when we actually talk with patients in detail, then there's usually there's opportunities here and there. So if I asked Jack, well, how do you feel about this about this promotion? I know it's a good thing, but have you have you been awake at night thinking about how you were going to do it? And it turns out, yeah. What's your feeling about being the uh, breadwinner in your in your household? And you know, had you had any thoughts cross your mind about how that's going to be when when there's a new baby? You thought about who's going to wake up in the middle of the night when the baby cries and and things like that and so I think even though it's not super comfortable for him to talk about those things little by little as we engage in the conversation I think we'd find out that there are some challenges they'd come up in a way that they don't seem like weakness they just seem like like wanting to do a good job with life and that that's not a slam dunk right so I, I want to go back and just, just emphasize a little bit more. So by dividing the problems into modules, then we actually simplify. And the panic attack is the module that comes on top because the panic attack happens out of the worry that the module underneath is going to fail, that, that in spite of his wanting to be a rugged individualist, he's going to find himself... Um, a blubbering mess and and not able to cope and so that's what 
is the, the, the ground that spawns this top layer, this um, panic attack. Now, underneath, underneath those two, there's actually a third layer. And that third layer that comes before Jack became the rugged individualist that he is, the third layer is how did he cope with the pain of, of wanting attention when, when it wasn't there. And the way he did that was he probably, as a little kid, he'd, he'd just go out and play or he'd distract himself with something else. But when that, when that threatened to fail, when he really needed some, some attention, like he was going to school the first day and, and he was pretty anxious about it, then, then his defense of saying, no, mom, it's okay, I'm fine, wasn't really gonna hold up. And that's when he began to form that second layer, the value system that says, don't ever, it's shameful to ask for help. So, so that's how eventually we're gonna discover those three layers. And the last one, the deepest one, is the last one that we're going to get to in his, in his therapy. The actual sense of his needing attention, because right now that's the last thing he might be aware of. So, so the entrenched dysfunctional patterns, the EDPs, can be visualized as stacked layers of defenses against painful emotion, negative affect. Exactly. And, and you address Jack's EDPs. Number one, in the first session, you are able to identify most of them and you address the most urgent one, which is the panic attacks, by giving him some psychoeducation, mm -hmm. some tools to, to counter the panic attacks should they occur again, mm -hmm. so that he can feel empowered to help himself, which answers or, or, or speaks to the rugged individualist in him, and at the same time, in that first session, you contract, you contract with him uh, the need for several sessions so that he doesn't run away from you because of his pride, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, so, so one thing about this EDP concept is it helps us because each EDP has at its core some maladaptive, some unhealthy way of coping with a painful deep down feeling. But it, there's also the feeling. And what's important here is that the ultimate cure for each layer of problems is to face the feeling and to have the feeling, I'll call it detoxified. It's actually fairly simple. What happens to detoxify those feelings is when we actually feel them in the session, preferably, in a context where it's really safe and it's okay, then the, the power of those feelings melts away. I'll give a trivial example. If, if I asked you what was your most embarrassing moment in life, and you were to tell me, you don't have to do it. <laughs> I have many to choose from. <laughs> okay, but if you were to do that, after you told me that embarrassing feeling, that embarrassing incident, you wouldn't feel as embarrassed about it, right? Perhaps, yes. Yeah, so that's a very, a very simple, trivial example of it. But, 
the, the more intense the feeling, the more power the uncomfortable feeling has to distort life. Like sometimes people who've had a traumatic event in their life will block it out for years. But when it finally comes out in the open, it gets detoxified. It's, it's, it's power over, over the individual melts away. We'll talk more about how that happens all the way down to the biochemistry of it. But the ingredients for healing a painful feeling are that you have to experience it in its, in its full emotional, uh, non-intellectual existence. And at the same time, it has to be in a context where you can experience the fact that, that whatever fear, whatever worry that's attached to that feeling isn't really that dangerous. It's not really that big a deal anymore. It's, it's, it's far in the past. It's not dangerous today, whatever it is. And so those two ingredients, a safe context, which usually comes from the relationship, a comfortable relationship with a therapist, and the, the fact that that feeling gets uncovered, those are the things that heal each EDP, each module. And so that's ultimately what we're hoping to do with Jack is to get to where Jack can actually allow himself to feel how anxious he was about his promotion and his new baby in a context where he's feeling safe and, and taken care of. That's going to heal that module. The, the one underneath about his, his personality is going to be a little harder because values don't change all that easily. And we'll have to get through that one before we can get to the really early one of feeling a need for, for attention and help and support. That's going to be pretty hard for him to, to actually experience in session. But when he does, then it will be transformed as well. So what all of this boils down to is the very simple way of thinking that, that the cure that we offer in psychotherapy, more than anything else, is we help people to face their feelings. And in facing their feelings, those feelings lose their power to distort the way we approach life. So y you say that with, with this um, integrated modular therapy, what, what I really appreciated about it was that here we have the case of Jack and, and you break down the presentation of, of his problem, of his dysfunctional patterns in layers and that each layer can be considered modules. And so by breaking down a, a, a whole presentation into workable modules, you then have a, a workable treatment plan, essentially. And you say that we need to access the most, or we need to approach the most accessible entrenched dysfunctional pattern. In this case, for him, it would be the panic attack. Mm -hmm and that we must work from the top down because the, ex the instinctive mind trying to avoid uncomfortable feelings will not tolerate a direct approach to the fundamental dynamic of the primary family, for instance, that could have caused a dysfunctional personality. Right, so we, we break up the problem and in fact Jack is, is kind of simple and we've all seen people like Jack before, 
and so we can make some educated guesses about what's going to be deep down, even though even though there's nothing that we can actually see or or hear that's that's going to help too much with that. At best, we're going to be guessing at it. But in many cases, uh, when you first work with somebody, when you first see somebody, you only get to see that the t the surface module, maybe one or two at the most. And there may be things underneath that you just don't know about that aren't going to appear until quite a while later. So that way we don't have to worry about all of those things, even though our curiosity stays alive, wondering what's uh, deep down there. I, I saw a guy the other day, and it was the second session. Uh, the first session we, uh, we talked about some of his, of his issues and, and one pattern that he had where every time he was was really working very well and super successful, then for some reason he would suddenly quit working so hard and back off and take his foot off the gas and that was costing him in his business so he wondered why that was. Well that was the subject of the first session. The second session I asked him a little bit more about his about his work and his partners and all and um, he told me that he wanted to be the number one partner in his business, even though he's the youngest, um, he wanted to come out on top. And so we began to talk about that burning ambition he had and where did that come from. And that led pretty soon to finding out that in his early life, every, his, his dad and his mom had both told him that he was going to amount to nothing. And he practically told me that the reason he's got such amb ambition is to, ta to say, um, screw you to the people who raised him and told him he was going to amount to nothing, and just watch, I'm going to be better than everybody else. And so just in a little bit of exploration, uh, we, we uncovered a whole layer for him. That's another module that wished to, in a way, talk back to all of those people who told him he was going nowhere. Right. So our initial session begins with the top EDP. It is a module. We start addressing it and then that reveals more information which right. allows us to go deeper yeah. to the second layer, to yeah. the third layer, to the fourth layer, and yeah. so on. And, and of course in a later chapter we'll talk more about that, but at the beginning it's super important to really take the time to listen to what the person brings to you as the thing that's troubling them. We, in medicine, we call that the chief complaint. And therapists have a tendency to just stop at the, the label, like, oh, I'm depressed. Oh, okay, you're depressed. Well, you want to find out a whole lot more about what that feels like so that you can kind of get inside it. And then at the same time, we're going to be interested in how is the person coping are their reactions to life in some way distorted? And so some of that is an observation that we make as an outsider who knows something about life and has seen a few people. Even though we're uncomfortable judging people, we're going to be evaluating, is there a, a, a way of approaching life that might be more satisfying for this person, for this individual? And we want to do that with a light touch because you know we don't want to impose our values on that person, but we're we're approaching this initial complaint both from the standpoint of wanting to understand how it feels to the patient and what feels wrong to the patient, 
and looking at it semi-objectively as an outsider. We put those two together and those are going to help us to understand the, the, the top layer module and maybe a little bit more about what's underneath. Right, and what's underneath is ultimately affect avoidance. Affect avoidance, that's right. So we're going to help people experience their feelings, face their feelings, and those are going to heal, and then the need for all of this distorted behavior is going to go away, and they'll be able to learn newer, healthier ways to approach things, and eventually those will become, become entrenched habits themselves that are healthier than when the person walked in the door. Right. And so when we begin Chapter 3, we'll talk more about that. And for us therapists to really understand what's going on during the session, we need to be attentive to what affect our uh, person, our client, is avoiding. Exactly. So, so again, those are, the, those are the two big questions that we want to keep in mind all the time. What is the, what is the deep down uncomfortable feeling that's causing this this dysfunction, this distortion of, of reacting to life, and what is the, exactly what is the thing that's, what is the distortion, what is the way that the person's reactions to life are skewed out of the place where they might be more satisfactory, where that might be better. So we're asking, you know, how is the person dysfunctional, and what's the feeling that's causing it? Right. So we'll, we'll take up this conversation uh, in our next uh, podcast session, Doctor, yep. mm -hmm. and uh, discuss Chapter 3 at that time, which is titled The Affect Avoidance Model. Okay, so that concludes our first podcast. Yes, it does. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>